You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Folks, I am so excited about so many things. I don't even know where to begin. We're going to be recording the realms course for the bride ministries institute very soon here Uh, that will be the 10th course of our institute and it is going to be the first level four course at the institute what does that mean that means that if you are new to our platform and you're just like oh realms that sounds cool i'll just take that class because i heard one podcast with dan duvall um don't this class is going to be very very deep and it's going to require some foundation. I promise it will be highly offensive to many people that do not have the foundation to understand the content of that class. So so, so we're making it a level four class and saying, look, do some prereqs first, take some of our other courses, get a foundation so you know why this class has the content that it does. But for those of you that are there and ready for it and waiting for it, It is coming soon. I also have something else coming soon. That is prayers in Spanish. Many of you have written in and asked for prayers in Spanish for different reasons, uh, different prayers that you think would help your loved ones that do not speak English. And this has been going on for a couple years now. Well, we are right now in the process of getting all of our prayers from the website translated into Spanish. You will see If you go to our website, brideministriesinternational.com, under the prayers, oraciones, it's on the menu. And right now it just says coming soon, but within the next few weeks, you will see that populated with all of our prayers in Spanish to be shared. And of course, they're available for free to anyone anywhere in the world. Um, We are just so grateful for God providing for us everything we need in order to do this. The next step is going to be to translate the entire Bride Ministries Institute into multiple languages. And I'll tell you what, this is a project we are beginning on, uh, you know, right now. And so over the coming months, you will see the fruit of that. And I just want to say thank you to all of you that continue to support us financially, because these are the kinds of things we are able to do because... You are sowing into our work. And remember, the Bible says, Give, and it shall be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Will God cause men to give into your bosom? I'm going to tell you this. At the beginning of this year, I said, this is a year of end of delay. Moreover, this is a time to sow. In other words, sow in the time of rain. <laughs> and uh, 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 I made a mention of this in, in, on, on the podcast at least once, and as well in the uh, Bride Ministries Church, but God has challenged my wife and I to sow and so big this year. And we are experiencing such incredible fruit. I mean, doors are opening everywhere and it's not stopping. And, and, and moreover, we have been getting so many testimonies this year of people's delay supernaturally coming to an end, just seasons of uh, a lack and wasted time and wandering, just ending. This year, and, and, I, and I told you guys, this is a year of end of delay. And, and, and I'll tell you, you know, one of the ways to tap into that is to sow into that. Well, we're just excited for so many reasons. And all of you that supported us last year, you should have gotten your gifts by now. Either you got the coupon or for some of our higher tier donors, we gave you some free earbuds and some free books. Um, that was just a joy for us to be able to do that for you. 
other than that, uh, we have a amazing program lined up for you this week, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm not going to take any more time on the front end of this podcast. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Folks, we are back this week, and I have brought Dr. Orison back to you in order to continue a conversation that we began a few weeks ago on the subject of narcissism. Now, if you did not get that podcast, I really want to encourage you to listen to part one because it was really good that he shared so many keys. Dr. David Orison has been a pastor for over 30 years. He's now the executive director of Grace for the Heart, which is a ministry dedicated to proclaiming the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for all aspects of the Christian life. Now, he has served in the Evangelical Free Church, United Presbyterian Church. He holds a PhD in theology from Trinity Seminary, and he is here to help us to understand the impact of narcissism. Dr. Orison, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. Well, after our last discussion, there was a pretty big uh, cliffhanger that I left because I, you know, towards the end of the program, I said, there's so much I want to talk about. I want to talk about narcissism in the workplace. I want to talk about narcissistic parents some more. I want to talk about narcissism in the church. And I definitely want to talk about healing from, from narcissism, all things that I'm looking forward to getting to here in greater depth, but really you get a question often, Dr. Orison, and it is, can a Christian be a narcissist? And, and I think that's a very, very genuine question, um, but I, I'm just going to pass that over to you and let you kind of address that. And, and I'm going to ask you to first remind us, especially for those that may have not heard the first podcast, what is a narcissist? Well, that's, and that's where we've got to go first. So I basically boil down narcissism to three things. One is what I call the, the desire for a superior image. Okay. So that's um, basically someone who feels inferior in themselves, but projects a superior image better than everyone else in every way. So in a Christian context, that's more spiritual, that's uh, better able to control uh, wiser. I mean, all of these kinds of things, it, whatever better means, um, that's what the person wants to project. Uh, the second part is the depersonalization of everyone else. And depersonalization is not a word that, that we use a lot. It's too big for one thing, it's too long to write, but, it, but it's pretty easy to understand. It means basically to take away the personhood of other, of other people so that they aren't real people anymore. The narcissist doesn't see others as real people. And uh, one, one of the ways to think about this, and we've got a, we've got a very interesting uh, phenomenon today that, that actually helps us, and that is the role-playing game. If you, if you think in terms of a role-playing game where you manage the players and other players manage their characters, um, the, the narcissist 
sees other people as characters almost in a role-playing game where his job is to use others to protect himself. His, you know, and, and all others are expendable to protect himself. So if you think about it in those terms, the, the narcissist, and in fact, the narcissist might find himself um, uh, connected to a character in a role-playing game. They might always identify with a certain character, might really appreciate a certain character's attributes or what a, what a certain character can do. So, so they like that. And, and in, the, in real life, quote unquote, uh, the narcissist does the same thing, right? So they attach themselves to very useful people. Useful is a great adjective in the mind of the narcissist, right? You get useful people hmm. and, uh, and then use those people. So that's step three, being willing and able to use slash abuse people to serve that superior image. In other words, so I got three things, the superior image, depersonalizing others, and use and abuse in order to serve that image. That summarizes what I would consider a narcissistic message or a narcissistic person or organization or relationship. Um, there, are, there are different things that connect to narcissists in general, but they all kind of boil down to those things. Yeah. They, don't, they have that superior image of themselves, they don't see others as real, and they use or abuse others to serve that image. So there's a definition. Now, your question, can a narcissist be a, a Christian? And that's actually not the question you asked. <laughs> the question you asked is, can a Christian be a narcissist? Okay, and and understand this is a theological question. So, so different denominations, different traditions, different backgrounds will have different answers when it comes to whether or not somebody can be saved and, and all of this kind of stuff. So, so we understand that. Um, from my perspective, um, how do I say this nicely? I've known a lot of Christians, as you have, and it's been my experience that Christians can do just about anything. <laughs> uh, you, you talk about some of the nastiest people you've met in your life, and, uh, and chances are pretty good in our circles. They've been Christians. Uh, at least they considered themselves Christians. And, uh, and if you ask them to define what it meant to be Christians— they would probably step back and give you the relative textbook answer. So I don't know at that point. I think Christians can do, because of the flesh, can do most any sin that's out there. Um, now, can they support that sin? Can they argue in favor of that sin? I mean, again, that's another question. Um, can a narcissist eventually be saved? Sure. I mean, Jesus can do whatever he wants, right? And I, and I think, I think you know, he can slap Paul upside the head and, uh, and get his eyes open. You know, here was a person far more zealous than us, you know, in doing the wrong thing. And God slapped him and said, hey, follow me. And, and he did. So, yes, there can be those kinds of experiences. The real question that I get that nobody actually says, okay, mm -hmm. um, but the real question is, how can the person who did this to me be a Christian? Mm. That's really the question. 
And that question comes from the heart. Because am I supposed to see that person as a brother or sister in Christ? Am I supposed to deal with that person, you know, in, a, in the same manner that I deal with supportive and loving Christians? I mean, how am I supposed to relate to this person now? Who's sometimes narcissists do some extremely hurtful things. I mean, they, they can knife you in the back while smiling in your face. And, uh, and you don't even realize it until you bleed out, right? <laughs> I mean, you don't know what's happened, but they did it right there, looking into your eyes like they're friends. I mean, I've had, I've had people who, who claimed the entire time that they were my supporters and friends while they knifed me in the back. And you wonder, how, how can a person be so duplicitous? How can they you know, act that way? And again, I don't have any particular problem saying that was narcissistic. I have a big problem saying that was Christian. And, and that's where we go with those kinds of questions. You know, can, can he, can he be a Christian? And the answer is, you know, I don't know. I know Christians can do hurtful things. Yeah. Um, one of the primary narcissists that I've had to deal with in my life. Mm. Okay. God and I talk a lot in the cars, in the car, right? Um, partly, you know, please protect me. No, <laughs> the way these days. Have been. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I remember one of, the, one of the clearest words I've had from the Lord, okay? Uh, almost as though it was audible. I mean, it was, it was a clear word from the Lord. I was saying, Lord, you've got to remove this guy from this leadership position. He is hurting people. He is destroying ministries. He is, he is causing all these problems. You know, it's, it's damaging. I mean, I just went on and on and I said, you've got to get him out. And almost as clear as you and I are talking, I heard the words or not. And I, but <laughs> in other words, God had a plan for him in that place. He's still in that. That prayer that I prayed was uh, now 14 years ago. He's still in that job, still doing the same thing, still hurting people. My gosh. And, and I look at that and I think, wow, what am I supposed to do with that? And, and there's only one answer that Jesus says all the time, you know, trust me, follow me. You know, what is that to you? You follow me, right? Um, so, okay, I guess. So, can, the, can a narcissist be a Christian? I suppose. I suppose. I would never use a narcissist as an example of a Christian. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, but, but I don't know how to answer that any other way than, than on a personal level like that. You know, I, I wish I had a nice theological system to, to walk through. You know, I, I can appreciate um, everything that you're sharing, Dr. Orson. And I, you know, I, if, it, it's an interesting question from my perspective. I see narcissistic tendencies in people that claim to be Christian all the time. Mm -hmm. um, as a matter of fact, I think anyone on a bad day can be accused of having a narcissistic tendency bleed through, myself included. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, 
But, you know, even in our first program where we delineated between, you know, some of the cop, like the characteristics of a narcissist and Mm -hmm. a diagnosed narcissistic personality disorder person, Mm -hmm. uh, there are different degrees. And one of the things that I have, you know, seen that has helped me a little bit and, you know, for some of those of you that are listening, especially coming from the background of serving people that have a lot of brokenness and married people that have a lot of brokenness, maybe because of satanic cult activity and other stuff. There's often these Christian fronts that people have, right? but behind the Christian front, you have other parts of that person. There's their heart issue right there. These other parts that are in fear, that are in shame, that are in guilt, that are in um, performance mode, that are in all this. And they, and I meet the parts, you know, in my work, they couldn't care less about Jesus when I meet them. They're just like, I have an agenda. And so we have this Christian front, you know, showing up at church, but once the person gets married to that individual, they get all the rest behind that front. And all of those parts that couldn't care less about Jesus, that's who's waking up to in the morning, arguing with that night. And trying to figure out how they're going to get to cooperate with the parenting job that needs to happen for the kids. It's uh, and so I have run into that uh, quite a few times. It's interesting. There's a, there's a story now going around and and, and some of our listeners may be familiar with this. If not, I'm just going to tell you there's a, uh, a pop star named R Kelly, right? And, and his music has ranged from extraordinarily uh, sexual to extremely inspirational. Uh, I Believe I Can Fly, one of his number one hits sung in churches all over the country. Mm. <laughs> Same guy that, that sung, you know, let me put my key in your ignition, baby. And um, so there's now a, a docu-series on this guy. And, and, and when I was thinking about this interview coming up, I'm like, this is it at its finest. This guy had an interview with uh, a lady named Gail King, I, I, I think. This. And, and, and in this interview, he gets up and throws a tantrum. Yeah. He tells her, I'm fighting for my life. He is upset that the people that he has hurt didn't have more positive things to say about him in the docuseries. Fascinating. <laughs> Amazing. And, 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 and you watch this and you're, I, I mean, bewildered. I'm bewildered. I'm like, who do you think you are fooling? 50 people yeah. have come forward to say bad things about what you have done. Yes. <laughs> and you're upset they didn't have more positive things to say about you? Yep. Well... <laughs> You know, the goal of the narcissist when he's, when he's faced with those kinds of accusations, the goal of the narcissist, whether it's, whether it's in a marriage or in a family relationship or, or anything like this, even in, in public, and you see this in politics all the time, the goal of the narcissist is to get them to shut up, right? So sympathy, does that work? You know, um, projection, does that work? You know, we'll throw some stuff back at you. Um, counter accusations and whatever it takes, the goal is to get them to shut up because the narcissist cannot handle um, that negative 
input. Well, you know, that, that negative judgment, it just can't handle that. That's way too close to home. Um, to, to somebody like R. Kelly, the, the question isn't, did I do those bad things and am I sorry? The, the question is, um, I don't want people to think that I am that kind of failure or that kind of loser that I have to do that stuff. See, I have, I'm above that. You're supposed to think of me as above that. And if you don't, then somehow the problem has got to be yours. It's never mine. I mean, it's the husband who will listen to his wife's concerns and then say, okay, are you done? And that's really what he hopes is that she's done. And she feels like he hasn't heard a word I said. And the reason she feels that is because he hasn't heard a word she said. <laughs> he hasn't been listening. All he wants is for her to shut up. And it's extremely depersonalizing. You know, what does that say to all of his victims? You know, it, it just says you're nothing of value to him. Fortunately, at least for those victims, they're getting a voice. Um, as we talked about just briefly earlier, um, the, the thing that throws me is how many of these guys, I mean, we know this is happening out there. We could name how many others who have done the same kinds of things, but just aren't on public display right now. And, and that's also part of what the narcissist thinks is, well, why me? There's all these other guys. I'm not as bad as them. So why are you picking on me? Uh, the perspective always circles back to when will you shut up? Wow. Well, on that note, I, I want to spend some more time talking about narcissism in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, something that many people have, have been through. I mean, this is, oh I, I think this is a very common place where this gets to play out. And because of the power differentials in a workplace, it can go on because of the lack of morality mandates in most workplaces. It right. can go unchallenged. What are the signs? And what does a person undergoing narcissism in the workplace find themselves struggling with? Yeah. There is a book that if, and I'll just plug it here if uh, anybody is listening and that is interested, called Working with the Self-Absorbed. Uh, I can't remember the name, the title or the, the author right now, but it's working with the self-absorbed. And, uh, and I think we all know exactly what that means, you know. Um, but the narcissist at work is the guy who will let you work and then steal what you've done. One of, again, one of my favorite stories, and I actually looked for it um, just today. I tried to find where I got this story from, but it was a President Bush speech that, uh, if you might remember, it's been several years ago where um, he was in front of some black uh, veterans, and at the end of his speech, he stopped and he saluted them. And it was very powerful. It was powerful imagery and, uh, and very touching to his audience. The men that were there to receive that salute really received it. It was, it was a good thing. And later on, um, in the restroom afterwards, one of the men who was a speechwriter for Bush or, you know, the presidents have multiple speechwriters and people who contribute um, came in and there was, there was the man who had written the speech was in the restroom. And, uh, and so 
this second man came in and he says, say, did you, did you write that speech? And the man said, yes. And he says, did you put that part in about him saluting the, the veterans? He says, yes. And he says, oh, okay. He says, the president asked who wrote it. So I said, I did. So that was that. So now the, the man who actually wrote it, what is he supposed to do? He go, is he supposed to go back to the president and like a little child say, now, Billy didn't really write that. I'm the one who wrote that. I want to get credit for it. No, he's not going to do that because he's a person of certain integrity and, and maturity. And so he's not going to do that. But the other man took the credit. Just took it. I mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> it's an excellent story of, of narcissistic uh, abuse at the workplace. Or one well, and you see it all the time. Car dealership, car dealerships are are replete with narcissists for some reason. I don't quite understand exactly what the, the narcissists are. Excellent salesmen, uh, that's part of it, and uh, and are able to, I guess you know the classic car salesman lie. You know the, they're able to do that very effectively. Um, but talk to somebody who works at a car dealership sometime and talk about the cutthroat tactics of coworkers. You know, uh, they will see someone come in who they know full well worked with someone else on a deal. They'll lie and say, oh, he's not here today, but I can help you. You know, and then they get the commission for the sale, even though so-and-so worked with them before. I mean, if that kind of stuff happens all the time at the workplace. Um, workplace politics can be devastating for somebody who's trying hard to do the right thing. Because again, like you said earlier, it's just hard to fathom who would do that. You know, you were raised to be honest. You were raised to be gracious and, and maybe even have some deference, you know, for, toward other people. Um, you know, my son is in retail. If, if he has a sale and he works, you know, he, he can put his numbers on or he can put his, his coworkers' numbers on. And, and every once in a while, he'll back off and say, no, so-and-so started this. So he needs to put his numbers on. You know, that's, that's how we train to do our lives. But that's not how a narcissist has trained to do his life. Get everything you can. Now, the other thing is, the narcissist believes everyone above him is inferior, okay? They shouldn't have those positions above, above him. He should have those positions. Um, everyone below him is nothing, right? They're just, they're the rungs on the ladder that he's using to climb up. Um, the boss is inferior and, and just not, you know, he, he doesn't know what he's doing, so the narcissist can criticize him but never to his face. <laughs> so again, you, you see this stuff and you, you want to log all of it. And I've told people over the years, I've said, you know, log this stuff, write it down. But there's a futility in that because by the time you're fed up enough to go and talk to the boss, the narcissist has already talked to the boss about you. And so he's precluded some of this. And, uh, and he's already made it so that if you ever go to the boss to talk about him, it's going to sound like sour grapes. It's going to sound like you're just, you know, getting back at him for what he has said. And you're going to be ineffective. Fascinating people. They, they think three or four steps ahead all the time um, to protect themselves. So 
<laughs> and, you know, and you're just talking and I'm just like, ding, ding, ding. You know, because I mean, I, how many times I have heard these kinds of points of frustration, you know, because people come home, they're venting about their job. They go hang out with their buddies, venting about their job. This is a story, right? right? I did all of this and my boss took the credits. Yes. You know, and I actually have an email record of giving him all of this. And, but when it comes time to pass out the trophies, they've somehow cornered the market. Yep. Yep. And what are you supposed to do? Again, like I said, like a little child, you go and say, hold it. I have evidence that he didn't do that. I did it. Normal people don't do that. You know, we back off. Now we shouldn't, I suppose, but we're going to lose when we do too. I mean, even when we try. All right. So have have you met anyone who has been under, you know, situation they're, they're dealing with narcissism in the workplace, right? They're working with the self-absorbed. Yes. (laughs) And they've actually cracked the code. They say, aha, I know how to handle this person. And and they actually gave you a few keys. I'm just wondering because I'm sure there are some people listening to this that are thinking, please, Dr. Orson, do you have a key? Because this is my problem. Yes. And the answer is yes. And I think you have to be very, very careful, though, because narcissists are very intelligent. They know when they're being played and they hate being played. They will respond. There's a term out there that's called narcissistic rage. And, uh, and, People need to be aware that the narcissist is absolutely ruthless when it comes to revenge. So if he thinks he's being played, you have to be very, very careful. Um, On the other hand, if you recognize what the narcissist wants, right? The narcissist wants attention, wants admiration. Um, He does not care about anyone or anything else. So if you can arrange for him to be well, for example, let's say you're, you, what you really want is to get something done, okay? So you say, well, we're not going to get anything done if he's leading it, right? So what you say is, so, man, you know, this is just going to be grunt work. Why don't you just check with us once in a while, make sure we're on track, and we'll do the grunt work, and then the narcissist can get the attention because he can take the report to the boss. He can get the pat on the back. If you're not, if you're not worried about that, you can get something done by kind of, you know, again, playing him to a certain extent, right? Um, now, that's not always enough because, again, the bosses, <laughs> once there's a narcissistic system, the boss accepts the narcissism of the lower of the lower ranks also, right? So he sees the narcissist as a real go-getter. And, and they'll, the boss sometimes will even say things like, well, I know that Bob didn't actually do all that work, but he's got so much energy and so much drive, we're going to reward him anyway. See, uh, We know he used the rest of you, but you know what? That's kind of what a manager does. So off Bob goes into management. And it's like, Bob's in management? Seriously? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) But Bob's not only in management. Bob is the GM and Bob is the district manager and Bob is the the marketing manager. And, you know, Bob's all the way up the ladder 
because of the Peter principle, you know, we, we push people up instead of down usually in organizations. And so, you know, these guys, they do rise, they do go up and uh, business politics is still politics, right? It's still about how you look. It's still about how you present yourself. Um, the pastor who's a narcissist, for example, generally, you know, surrounds himself with staff that is competent, but clearly compromised or under the thumb in some way. So he gets everything done. And, and those who work with him, and I've, I've talked directly with people who've been on staff with a narcissistic pastor. Um, people who work with him find that he's not competent. He doesn't write his sermons. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't lead. He doesn't make decisions well, but he presents himself well. And in a church that's about image, back we're kind of slipping into the church here, but if the church is about how we look to the world and to the rest of the churches, especially in the denomination, then our good-looking, bold and brash pastor, he makes us look good. So we don't really care as long as he gets his job done. And if he gets it done on the back of those expendable associates or assistants, that's really not such a bad thing as long as we look good. Of course, nobody says that, but that's the reality. So um, we're kind of just walking right into it. So here, here's the thing. Your book is really focused on narcissism in the church. That, that's where you, I, I mean, you are, as a man of God, having a larger conversation on narcissism, especially on your website, your blog, Grace for My Heart, so on and so forth. But your book is a zeroing in on the church. So I, I, since you've walked us into this, let's just talk about it. Um, I'm, you know, open up on some of the, 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 the revelations that you've had, you know, the, the way that it plays out at different levels of the church and um, help us understand. Hmm. You know, I think I might have shared this last time, the old thing about about outrunning the bear, right? I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. Um, when I when I come into the Christian life, right? <laughs> have you heard that? <laughs> you know, the story is the two men and the, they yeah. meet the bear in the woods and one of them has to put on the, his shoes, right? So he can outrun his neighbor. But when I come into the Christian life and everything that is pushed on me. Everything that is taught to me is about looking good and being good, right? Everything is about my behavior, my performance. Um, do this, do this, avoid this, avoid this. And the list just grows and grows, you know, the longer you're in the church. Um, if that's my definition of the Christian life, how in the world do I ever measure up? Because what do they tell us? They, they tell us, well, be like Jesus, Okay, uh, good luck with that, you know. I mean, here's the guy who never sinned. It's too late. <laughs> we, we already blew that, you know. We already have too many compromises. So now I can't be as good as Jesus. I know that in the back of my mind. I know I will never measure up to the ideal. And I'll never measure up to the pastor's preaching. I'll never measure up to what the Bible teaches but I can be better than you. 
in some ways. Hmm. See, so as long as I can control the conversation, then I can be better than you. So in the church, we develop this process of comparisons and the comparisons play right up to the narcissist's game, right? What's the goal of the narcissist? To have a superior image, to look better than everyone else. So the narcissist comes to the church and says, wow, this is like fertile ground for me. All these people are trying to measure up. And the narcissist has lived his life, not just measuring up, but being superior or trying, you know, presenting himself as superior. He does that very quickly. He does that, you know, in, in a very powerful way. The, the narcissist comes to church and is instantly so spiritual, so impressive, you know, such a, a good, strong, giving, loving kind person, you know, until you get behind the scenes, of course, but we don't get behind the scenes at first. You never do with the narcissist, not at first. Um, pretty soon the narcissist has built or has just simply entered into and, 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 and energized that system of comparison, which creates, I think, a narcissistic organization, an organization based on how we look to others. So now, I would, I would go so far as to say this. I would say almost every church, almost every church could name, if you took a poll in every church, you could name, say, the top three spiritual people in the church. <laughs> right? Okay. All right. All right. How does that happen? Now, now if, you, if you actually read the scripture and you actually understand the gospel, everybody's just as spiritual as everybody else because we're either in Christ or we're not. And Jesus is either our righteousness or he's not. I mean, there's, there's only one level of spirituality and that's with him. But we all understand this sort of hierarchy and it's there. So we know who looks good according to the system. If you go to every denomination, let's say, let's take a district of a denomination. Every district knows which churches are their best players, okay? They're the ones that give the most to the district. They're the ones that give, you know, that, that participate. You can, you can hold your conference there. You know, they'll, they just work with the district very well. So, therefore, they are the superior church. They don't have the problems that the lesser churches do. Every denomination knows what their hierarchy is and what their comparison system is. Pretty soon you've got a game to play and the narcissist knows how to play that game. So you come into a church, you become a good, strong leader because everybody is so impressed with you. Pretty soon you're on the district board. Pretty soon you're in, you know, denominational leadership. And it really does work like that. I've, I've been in two denominations and I've watched it in both denominations. One, you know, very liberal and mainline, um, one very conservative and separatist, you know, both did the, do exactly the same thing. Politics are politics. <laughs> it, once the narcissist figures out what the game is, then he knows how to play it. So the church has to look good. We have to look good to the world, but we also have to look good in comparison with other churches. And that's, that's embedded in us. I think that is part of the church narcissistic message to have that superior image. Now, does it depersonalize other people? 
Well, sure. You would be amazed, and maybe you wouldn't because you probably know this, but at how often denominations refer to giving units. A giving unit is another word for family. (laughs) I've never. Because, Dr. Orson, you you have to understand. (laughs) I never got anywhere like close to being pulled into the inner circle of any like denominational church leadership. Like it was not me. <laughs> I, got, I got what you call the left foot of fellowship in, yeah. in a number of situations. Um, so, so, so there's a lot of like insight. Like I talked to my, my wife has been in inner circles her family, her mom has been in inner circles until she tells me things. And I just listen to her like, not my world. I, yeah. I don't even know. It's a giving unit. <laughs> when, I, when I was in the in the Presbyterian Church, they our churches were each assessed a certain amount that we're supposed to give to the denomination. You know what it was yeah. called? It was called per capita tax. Okay, a head tax. Basically, you go out and you count the number of people that are out in, in your church, and you send X dollars based on how many people. Well, now, in the days in the past, there used to be a, 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 you know, a great benefit to having your church full of people. When the denomination started to charge the churches on the basis of how many members they had, pretty soon they dropped members because they thought, well, we're going to have to start paying for some of these members. I mean, again, there's no such thing as a real person in that system. There's, there are members and giving units and heads and, you know, things we count. Things I've, we never, use. I've never heard a denominational pastor preach this message, which you're saying, like that. <laughs> that doesn't usually make it into the I may not moment. be one for long. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> like my philosophy on giving is I'm going to tell you the benefits of giving. And then we just like... I, Oh, we're like we're very different than I guess a lot of church like traditional churches on our platform. So this is my my experience. I'm listening to you. I'm like, oh, tell me more. <laughs> what is this world? That's right. Well, so, you know, I, I want to come back to something. Okay, so so you talk about narcissistic leaders as people that are pegged for creating an image. Mm-hmm. In an organization. Yes. And upholding that image mm-hmm. by learning to play the game. But I propose, I, I, I surmise that the only reason there is an image that a narcissist learns to play the game for is because healthy leadership can produce a healthy body that will look similar from the outside, even though it's not the same from the inside. Yes. And there is a need for healthy leaders that actually do take the, like Moses, he took the children of God across the Red Sea. They had to go from where they were to where they were going and they needed a leader to take them there. So, So what I guess are some of the, delineation so we don't get confused you know and people say well any leader that's actually producing you know results that could be measured is narcissistic like what are some of the differences right. between a healthy leader that gets things done and a narcissistic leader that's creating that image 
Yeah. Boy, that's, that is a good question. And, and I think it would be hard to find church leadership that's not in a system that seems very narcissistic. Okay. Mm. Um, and, and let me, let me stick something in and then I'll get away from it because it popped into my head and it needs to be said. Um, the Christian life is worth, or the, let's say the, the Christian identity is worth faking. There, there are people who benefit from faking a Christian a Christian walk, right? Uh, the, there are salesmen who come into churches and glad hand everybody so that they'll sell the insurance policies. You know, there's those kinds of things. There are pastors who are pastors without a relationship with Jesus. Uh, we know this to be true. I've met people, I've met pastors who were saved at Billy Graham rallies, okay? Um, because God finally got a hold of them. Uh, Paul himself would have been one of those. Okay, so so we know that that there are pastors who are out there. If the system is going to bless the superior image, okay, if that's what the system is designed to do, then it's going to be very hard for any pastor to avoid getting caught up in that. I think even the ones who are serious about their Christian walk and their Christian faith, they're not, they're not going to be seen as game players. They're not going to be seen as the people who are really participants in the system. So what does a good pastor look like as he's leading his people? Well, I think one of the things is he doesn't leave anybody behind, right? He cares for the people. Uh, he, He takes them along. He understands that his job is to follow Jesus and to encourage them in their relationship with him. I've, I've told people for years as I've counseled, I've said, you know, my job is not to give you the answers. My job is to take your hand and put it in the hand of Jesus so that you can find your answers in him. And then I'm out of the deal. I'm, I'm out of the picture. You don't need me. I think a healthy pastor can look at his congregation and say, they don't need me, right? Um, I could leave tomorrow and they would continue because they're walking with Jesus. That's the goal at least. No, you know, there are all kinds of things, but, um, but to give you a, an example of one pastor that, that I knew years ago, and I, I'm careful, I'll try to make this very general, but um, he was hired to lead this church into the future. Right? This was an older church. He was hired to lead the church in the, into the future. He told them, no, you don't want me. You don't want me because I'll, just, I'll do what, it need, what needs to be done. They said, oh, no, we want you to do what needs to be done. We want to take this church forward into the future. So back and forth they went until they finally hired him. Well, he says, okay, what we need to do is sell this church building and move farther out of town in big, in big town. Well, the people are like, but, but – we like being able to walk to church. You know, we, our older people can drive to church and not feel like it's a long ways away. I mean, you're, you're going to take away our church. And he said, well, that's what needs to be done in order for the church to grow. <laughs> so then he, then he led them to buy another church, join with another church, buy another building. They sold those two buildings and built a huge facility on the outskirts of town, basically disenfranchised people of two congregations, these people literally had to drive, I'm going to guess maybe 20 miles 
okay, to get to the new church, the older, older families, their older couples, um, started a new church, brand new people, brand new facility, completely separate from the older folks. Now he, he led the church, you know, the church grew, there were all those kinds of things, and he did exactly what they called him to do, but he did it without them. They were not real to him. They, their loss meant nothing to him. That's the, deep, the depersonalization, see, that I see. And I don't see how a real pastor can lead people into a godly future by depersonalizing them. Does that make sense? Wow. I don't, I don't think you can leave people behind. Now, I know there, there are going to be people who disagree, and that, that's, a different, that's a different thing. There are people who don't, who don't connect with the vision. There are people who say, you know, I'm not going to do this, or for some reason they resist. That's, that's a little different. At least, at least they've had a chance to connect, and it's been, you know, maybe for some other reason they don't connect. Um, but a pastor who can just simply walk and leave people behind, I don't think is a pastor. And see, you know, you get me going here. I, I don't think we have very many pastors anymore. We have managers. We have CEOs. That's what the church wants today. We, we have, you know, facilities managers. We have program managers. Um, and we have, in a sense, spiritual managers. So that's kind of sad, I think. Now, you're articulating all of your ideas. And so when you're talking about the church as an organization, I mean, there are obviously tiers of um, authority, so to speak, within the body, right? You do have the head mm -hmm. denominations. will call that a pastor or some will call it a prophet or apostle or, you know, um, sure. reverend, depending. And sure. you have those that are, you know, serving servant leaders and, and different ones now what does narcissism look like when you get beneath the pastor and then narcissism begins to manifest on that level like within the local church yeah within local church you have you can have narcissism at every level i think um i think you can have the the narcissist who runs the the women's um rummage sale the yearly rummage sale, right? Um, they raise money for the orphan kids in such and such a place, and she's always been in charge of it, and it's always her way. Um, that person can be a narcissist. I think one of the things that, that we forget is narcissism, again, is, is on a continuum scale, okay? It's very individualistic. So narcissists don't always have to be the pastor. They don't have to be the top, you know, the top person. Some are, are quite willing to be on other levels as long as they have somebody that they're in charge of, <laughs> right? They have somebody who does the real work, um, you know, as long as they have followers or admirers or whatever, they're happy. You know, the, the building committee, the, the people who, you know, um, take care of the lawn. I mean, you can, you can have narcissists at any level, um, I think, you know, elders positions, I've known people, I know we had a man years ago who came to us and he says, I think it's time for me to be an elder. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, right away, the red flags start flying around, you know, and I said, well, you know, that's, that's good. You know, we have, we have some work that needs to be done. And he stopped me. He said, no, no. He says, I, I don't, 
I don't have time to do any work. I just want to help you guys make decisions because you need help making decisions. And I, you know, this is good. This is yeah. Good. Maybe yeah. we don't need you so much. <laughs> but that's all he wanted to do. He wanted to make decisions. You know, <laughs> we didn't get him as an elder, by the way. Wow. So, so I think again think in terms of the narcissistic message and the narcissistic system. And, and it explains a whole lot of what we see in organizations. Um, and if I can, one of the things that I wouldn't mind bringing up and talking about just a little bit yeah. is this thing that we're seeing now in, in the, I think it's one of the Southern Baptist branches with this, I think there's six or 700 documented cases of child sexual abuse. I mean, you know, all of us evangelicals watched the Catholic Church go through their thing over the last 20 years, right? Wow. And we patted ourselves on the back and said, ah, well, there but for the grace of God, you know, that kind of thing. And thank God I'm not a Catholic kind of stuff. And, you know, our guys are doing the same things. How is that possible? You know, and, and now we're hearing from mission organizations, from churches, individual churches, from churches and denominations, these guys that committed these crimes often, almost, well, I should say regularly, simply move to another church, just like the Catholic Church did. We did the same thing. Wow. <laughs> Why? Well, number one, because we don't want to look bad in the eyes of the world, so we're not going to have a scandal, right? Scandal, bad, don't like it. It makes all of us look bad, so we're not going to talk about this. We're going to cover it up. Plus, you know, Jim Bob over here, he's kind of a good pastor. He's got a good heart. He's in our system. He's a good old boy, okay? So we'll take care of him. And we'll make sure, we'll just kind of watch him so he doesn't do this again and, and pat him on the head and, you know, try to get his accusers to shut up, right? Because that's the, that's the goal. Let's get them to shut up. And we'll push them off to the side and, you know, we'll, we'll commiserate. We'll give them some, some counsel or something like that. And in the process, we'll make ourselves look okay. We'll cover this. And that's one of the one of the big questions is how in the world could a system cover six or seven hundred documented cases? How is this possible? God. I think it's not only possible, it's not surprising. It's how a narcissistic system works. Image is everything. Victims are nothing. That's terrible. You know, you hate to hate to even put that in words because I know that there's somebody out there who's going to listen to this, and that right there was a major trigger. And I'm sorry because you know I understand that that's got to hurt a lot. But understanding what happened is part of this. When you we we ended last time by me saying I think part of why I wrote this book is to answer what the heck happened. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, wow. there's an answer out there. Now, here's what's interesting to me, and, and I'm, I'm taking this maybe a little farther, but one of their answers in the, in the Southern Baptist Church right now 
is possibly going through these churches that have been offenders and, and uh, systematic offenders where they've maybe had multiple people or a, a system that protected people, and they're going to get rid of those churches. They're going to they're get those churches out of there. Well, what's that about? That's not discipline. It looks like discipline. That's more cover-up, right? That's, that's the boss who says, this employee who's unhappy, my goal is to get him out of there so that my, um, my performance uh, uh, you know, uh, measurement as a boss goes up. I don't have as many unhappy employees. I get rid of the ones that say they're unhappy. That doesn't make anybody happier. It just makes you look better. So getting rid of these churches solves nothing. It maybe it maybe looks good on the outside, but that's what it is. That's why the narcissist politician, the R. Kelly's even, can go on TV and say, "Well, I'm sorry," right? Because that's just a price that you pay to look good. Saying I'm sorry looks good, but then everybody else is supposed to shut up after that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it's really, it really is. I've talked to so many wives and I've had emails from so many wives. And when I say something like, and the husband says, I'm sorry, there, can we talk about something else now? You be, a, the, the feedback I get when I write something like that or say something like that is shocking. They're like, that's what I hear all the time. <laughs> I'm sorry. Can we move on now? But every politician does the same thing. You know, every superstar does the same thing. I'm sorry. Can we move on now? <laughs> <laughs> now, on that point, I've got to say one thing, you know, for all, for all the men out there, because, because we got some hurting brothers. Okay. Yeah. That's it. Now, if, if it's, I'm sorry I forgot to take out the trash because I worked a 12-hour shift and got home late. Yeah. But we've been arguing about the trash for four hours. <laughs> I'm sorry. Can we talk about something else? Talk about one thing. <laughs> That's completely different. Completely than, different. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry I beat our child until they were virtually unconscious. Right. Sorry. Can we talk about something? Like there's or a, I'm sorry I messed around with your best friend. I mean, come on. There, there are narcissists who, deal, who do that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I just think about it, right? It's like, well, I guess I could change. You know, this is for the non-narcissist feeling convicted. And next time I get, you know, harangued for four hours about not taking out the trash, I could say, I am so sorry. Can we talk about this for another hour? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. No, but um, you are bringing up so many good points and, and you really are pulling some keys, like, like, you know, uh, bringing some revelation and understanding to the w reason why things happen. Um, it, it's certainly an angle that is revelatory yeah. in many ways. It's an angle that is revelatory in many ways. Um, and, and it does occur on different levels. Was there more you wanted to say about narcissism in the church before I moved to uh, <laughs> parents? No, let's, let's move on. That's good. I wrote a when, whole book on narcissism in the church. 
which <laughs> folks you can uh, grab uh, at, at, from Amazon or anywhere else. And um, nar narcissism, when you're dealing with narcissistic parents, you know, you, you, you bring up this word image. It's just a centerpiece of the way that you define it. It's all about yeah. So, so narcissistic parents, by definition, then, would be parents that are interested in having the kids produce an image of the family. Yes. Or produce an image of them as parents with very little value on the child, yeah. him or herself. So many children um, that deal with narcissistic parents often have a lot of issues related to this depersonalization Mm -hmm. of their own humanity that they've experienced from birth onward. Yet this expectation to perform. So I want to let you talk a little bit about that and um, give us some help. Yeah. You know, this morning is as things go this morning, I was in the grocery store and I heard a man talking on his phone. Okay, one of the wonders of cell phones is everybody gets to listen to your conversation, right? So, so I heard him on the cell phone. He's talking to his kid, and he's telling, "Okay, now do this, do this, you know. And if you're going to take the car, be be careful, you know. And you could ride your bike and all that kind of stuff." And in the course of this, you know, I love you. Watch yourself, blah blah blah. He says, "Now, don't disappoint me this time." And then he goes on with, I love you and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, you know what that kid heard. You, you know what that kid heard. One thing out of that whole conversation that kid heard, don't disappoint me this time. Zing. That's what the kid heard. Now, I understand that as a father. And, and I understand that you slip, you say stupid things, you say mean things. Sometimes I understand that um, the child of narcissistic parents heard that as part of their identity. I mean, that was like you said, from birth on, uh, I knew a mother years, this is 40 years ago um, who had told her daughter ever since she was born, I wish I had aborted you. That's what she would say when she, when she got angry with their daughter. But when she was going out or when she was with friends, she would doll the little girl up, fix up her hair. I mean, she was the little beauty queen, you know, who would be on display for everyone to see and then ripped apart as soon as they got home. And, and I looked at that story and I started to think about that in context of narcissism. I knew this, this family pretty well. This little girl grew up thinking that she was only accepted when she was not herself. When she was herself, she was rejected. So she grew up knowing that as long as she could be the little beauty queen acting perfectly, not acting like a child, okay, not acting like a little girl who might want to skip and jump and, jump and have fun or laugh or play. No, don't do that because that's going to make mom look bad. Instead, be who you're not. Don't be who you are. Who you are is rejected. Be who you aren't. Well, that's exactly a definition of narcissism, right? Put up the image of yourself, the unreal image, and push away the reality of yourself. 
So it is a truism. It is, it is something that I have to be very, very careful saying because, again, it hits pretty hard for people. But yes, narcissistic parents produce narcissistic children. Mm. They teach children how to do that because that's how mom and dad lived life. And so, yes, you do see these things running through families. Now, interestingly, it doesn't always affect everyone in the family. So a family of three children doesn't necessarily have three narcissists, probably just one. Uh, they, they seem to focus on one and it'll be the one that mom doted on. It'll be the favorite. The others are nothing. The others were, were ignored. You know, um, maybe they're two boys and a girl and mom decided to focus on the girl. You know, I don't know, whatever, whatever the system was. Um, but somebody is the favorite. Now the favorite is trapped because again, the favorite has to be what they're not. The others are just who they are. Nobody cares about them, but the, but the favorite learns how to perform for mom and for dad. Um, it's not uncommon for both parents to be narcissists. It, it's amazing to think how does, how do two narcissists live together? Well, you know, they're both phony and they both play each other and, and they need each other. They feed each other basically. And, um, it's not uncommon at all. It seems a little strange to the rest of us. Um, sometimes it's the, you know, one parent is, is, uh, the doormat, you know, and the other is extra dominant and boy, that can be on either side. And, and by the way, I often toss out the number of 75% of narcissists are men. Um, I don't know if that number is true anymore. And some, someone challenged me on that at one point, not too long ago. And I think that's worth challenging. It's, it's kind of a traditional urban wisdom kind of number. Um, it may be that there are more women narcissists. They're just different. They're just more covert, for one thing. Uh, they, they manipulate more by personal need, you know, and, and, uh, and rather than the domineering, you know, overt tactics, um, used to be that we would say this was a man's world, you know, so that men, men got by, you know, pushing themselves, you know, being aggressive. Well, we're changing as a culture. And we, I think we talked a little bit about this before, but women are becoming aggressive in the culture. Women are becoming different, you know, in terms of how they present themselves. So that number may not be true anymore. Uh, certainly there are men who are caught up in narcissistic relationships with women. And I, I want to make sure that we say that because that's, I want to validate those things. You know, you know just, just on that point. Um, I mean, I, th I think this is absolutely true. A man married to a narcissistic woman who is abusive is way less likely to seek out professional help from a counselor. Yes. Yeah. Than a woman married to a narcissistic husband is. Right. And so the reporting would be skewed just by the nature of, men are like, I'll just figure it out or yeah, I won't go home. You know, it's like it's different coping mechanisms, maybe. Uh, but no, I think you're right. I think you're right. I want to get to this uh, before we close the program. And I, and I want to talk a little bit about healing from narcissistic abuse. You know, we, we, we've talked a lot about the different aspects and elements and, and folks, again, if you did not listen to part one, go back and find it because there's a lot of gold there. But I want to take the last little bit of time and talk about, okay, what have you landed on as effective tools 
for healing from narcissistic abuse? Uh, you know, bottom line is you have to know how you as an individual receive value. Mm. Um, how, on what basis is your value as an individual? Narcissists target people with low self-esteem and low personal value. Okay, so the, the person who's already ripping on themselves, the narcissist just comes alongside and connects with that and keeps it going. So narcissists don't often connect with strong people. Strong people just shrug them off and say, you know, who are you, jerk? You know, <laughs> and they and they move on to someplace else. You know, even a even in a system like a church, you know, a, a pastor who comes across as being, you know, very you know, dictatorial and and prescriptive in his in his teachings and stuff. You know, strong people will go in there and say, "Whoa, this place isn't for me," and leave. Okay, but people who are already down on themselves, already self-critical they hear that it resonates. It's the familiar song that their heart has been playing for a long time. And so they become victimized again. So how do you deal with that? Well, you find the real source of your value and the real source of your value lies in your relationship with Jesus, your personal relationship with Jesus. It's the kind of thing where you, where you honestly have to say, you know, though no one join me still, I will follow, you know, I'm still going to walk with him whatever anybody says. It's just Jesus and me against the world. That's okay to say that. That's okay to have that kind of perspective. It has to do with identity. Um, I, I had a man come to me uh, a few years ago, and he said, he said, you know, I've been in the church as an adult for 40 years. This man was an alcoholic, been through two bitter divorces, uh, lost everything both times, and he says, I've been in church all that time, through all of that. And he says, for the first time since coming to your church, the first time I've heard that God loves me. That about broke my heart. I mean, on one hand, I'm so thankful that he heard that. On the other hand, it just grieves me that somebody could be in church 40 years and not hear that. Now, I understand. I'm not, I'm not naive. I understand that. Sometimes there's a time and a place in a person's life where you're ready to receive. But I also know how churches work. <laughs> if you depersonalize people, you're not telling them that they're loved. Those two don't go together. You can't show them that they're giving units and members and then tell them that they're loved and known by name and cared about even when they screw up. You, you can't have both. And that's where, I'm, that's where I was going with the, with the pastor. The healthy pastor has to know his people. He probably would move into a project much more slowly um, than, than some because he's going to make sure people come alongside, come along with. So find out about God's love. I've told people, you know, if you can't read Scripture— because I've had people coming out of, leader, or of legalism, you know, and, they, and everything in Scripture is condemnation. That's all they see. That it's, It just rings in their ears. And I say, well, don't read Scripture. I mean, I, you know, you hate to say that, but don't read Scripture. If that's a negative for you, don't do that. Wait. In the meantime, connect with Jesus. 
Try to figure out who Jesus is. Try to try to just relax and talk to him about your day like you would talk to a friend. Establish a relationship. Then go back when you feel ready. Go back and look at the book of John. And I always love the book of John because the book of John presents a loving and caring Savior. You know, he's, he's strong. He's authoritative. He's powerful. But he zeroes in on the person and he loves them. And it's, it's an amazing message. And I said, just look for that. Don't worry about anything else. Just look for that love. So don't worry about what it says you have to do or don't do. Just look for that love and you'll find it. And, and I've had a lot of people come back and say, boy, that helped. You know, just, just to relax and look for Jesus. I've never been able to do that before. And the same kind of thing with prayer. Just talk. You don't have to have a formula. You don't have to have. I mean, we've heard this. I think ultimately the narcissistic system cannot teach Jesus as a person. They can't teach Jesus as a person. It's easier to teach him as an idea or as a system or as a doctrine because it keeps him at a distance. And then we can do our thing. But you start teaching Jesus as a person, and pretty soon, you know, it matters what Dan does with Jesus. That's, that matters. It's just as real as your relationship with your wife. It's just as real as your relationship with your kids. You know, it matters what Dave and Jesus do together. There's a, there's a real personal relationship. That's where healing comes from. That's the, that's the grace that provides that personal healing. Once you can learn to stand there, then I say some very practical things. And that is, you know, <laughs> here I'm, I'm going on a real spiritual bent and then I'm going to say this. In dealing with a narcissist, it's CYA, right? Cover your, you know what? Because they will try to get you. They will try to pull you down. So don't be afraid to protect yourself. Wise as serpent, innocent as doves. You know, we, we need to understand what the battle is. And at work, if you're dealing with a narcissist, admit it to yourself. I get in trouble sometimes because I tend to say that narcissism is evil. And narcissists either are evil or do evil things. And people say, well, you're not, you shouldn't call people evil. And I say, well, I need to call it as it is. Because if I don't, if I try to sugarcoat it and I say, well, you know, the poor narcissist, they're just, they're just broken, they're suffering, what is that supposed to produce in me? It produces compassion. What does compassion produce? Openness, yielding, welcome. Don't welcome the narcissist. <laughs> He'll get you. <laughs> it's not a game to play, right? You've got to protect yourself. There is evil in this world. There are people who will hurt you. And the narcissist is one of them. So don't be afraid of protecting yourself. For a wife, and I think I maybe said this last time, tuck away a little bit of money. Have some friends. Think about if you need to get out of this relationship. Well, heaven forbid. I hope you don't have to. But if you do, where would you go? What would you do? What skills do you have if you need to support yourself and your family? If you don't have any, how could you get them? What could you do? 
You know, narcissists pull every, everybody away from their support systems. They, they try to isolate. You know, is there some way to get out of that isolation? Connect with a neighbor. Connect with a friend. Go out and join an exercise class. Go do something, you know, to, to help yourself become healthy. If you can't do that, then have a spot in the backyard with a chair where you can turn your back on the house for a few minutes and spend some time with Jesus. But, but have some personal time and some personal space. Begin to build your own identity again. The narcissist steals your identity, steals your life, steals your work. We talked about already. You know, all of those kinds of things. It's okay for you to build you. You know how many people just plain need that permission? <laughs> they just need to hear that it's okay to do that. They think they're supposed to serve everybody else all the time. That's what got them into this. That's the direction that I would take some of that. <laughs> well, you have a, a, a lot of seasoned thoughts. Um, thank you for all of that, Dr. Orison. Before we end this, what are the websites that you maintain? Okay, so the, the blog is at www.graceformyheart.wordpress.com. Okay, that's long. You can get there by going now to our website, which is Grace for the Heart. I always have to differentiate that. Sorry. I'm actually trying to start a radio program called Grace for Your Heart, but that's, an, that's another one. So this is going to make more confusion. But anyway, it's graceforheart.org. And that's very simple graceforheart.org. Um, you can look it up, you can look the book up on Amazon. Um, I've got a devotional book also that's called Walk With Me. You can look it up by my last name or, you know, Dave Orson. Um, Narcissism in the Church is the name of the recent book that we're talking about. Uh, hopefully we'll have a couple more books coming out here in the next couple months that I'm just putting finishing touches on. So that'll be more grace books uh, teaching how to have that healthy walk with Jesus, how to be that healthy person. Well, folks, my guest this week has been Dave Orison on the subject of narcissism, helping you learn something. So, until next time, God bless and Godspeed. You've been listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. This podcast is a production of Bride Ministries International. Visit our website at brideministriesinternational.com to enjoy the Bride Ministries Church, the Bride Ministries Institute, free resources, and to support us financially.